0: the holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, from Nazareth of Galilee, the gospel of the Lord, the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Matthew. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Then, when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, He changed his mind and brought back the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury since it is blood money. So they took counsel and brought with them the pot, bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? That he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand and kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head and when they had mocked him, They stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. Please stand. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered Jesus wine to drink He trusts in God, let God deliver him now if he desires him, for he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli. Lemus sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Please kneel as you are able. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who'd fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. I speak to you in the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Please be seated. Well, the two passages we've heard from Matthew's Gospel this morning afford me the chance to circle back to a theme that has emerged this Lent here at St. Matthias and to be able to consider this theme from a different angle. The two passages provide a contrast of two very different treatments Jesus received within a very short time span of less than a week. The first passage we read from Matthew 21 described Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, where we saw Jesus beginning to receive the acclaim he deserves. As crowds went before him and followed behind him, shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna! Meaning save us! Hosanna! Hosanna! In the highest, Jesus was being celebrated as the Messiah and King who'd been promised to come from the line of David. And yet, this parade of exaltation was only a shadow of the praise and tribute he deserved and now receives in heaven as the King of all creation, where the book of Revelation reports quote, myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands say with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. But in stark contrast to his triumphal entry is what Matthew 27 records as happening just days later when, as we will commemorate this Friday on Good Friday, Jesus was treated in a very different manner than he had been at the triumphal entry. The shouts of Hosanna had turned to calls for Jesus to be crucified, and the cheers of Hail King were now said in mockery. He was spit upon, he was struck repeatedly, and he was stripped before being paraded this time, naked through the streets. And then finally, Jesus was subjected to a form of execution reserved in Roman society only for the dregs of society. He was exalted for all to see, still naked, with a robber on his left and a robber on his right, to be derided by passers-by as he slowly suffocated under the weight of his own body. And all of this was engineered with representatives of all the world, each taking part. Judas, the follower of Jesus who betrayed him, stood in for Christians, followers of Jesus, through all ages, who continue to betray our Lord whene'er we sin. The high priest and the elders represented Jesus' abandonment by his own people, the Jews, that he'd come to save. And the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, represented the Gentile and unbelieving world that persists even to this day in their indifference to Jesus and their blindness to the salvation that he brings as the path to true life. All of these played a part in Jesus not only being wrongly convicted and put to death, but in putting Jesus to shame. You know, guilt says a person has done something bad or wrong. Shame says, you as a person are intrinsically bad. You are intrinsically wrong. You are worthless. And that is what the particular manner of Jesus' execution was intended and designed to communicate. Away with him. He is worthless. We are better off without him. And so the irony of Jesus' passion, or irony probably understates it, rather the absurdity of his passion is that the world, humankind's response to this one who is really, is, is really worthy of all our praise. The absurdity is the response they have is in such contrast to the praise that he is worthy of as he is the one to whom one day every knee will bow. And so how absurd to deem him utterly worthless. And yet, as I thought upon this and prayed upon this this week, I couldn't help but think about how this absurdity parallels the way that sin often operates and is perpetuated in our own lives and this is a theme that the theme that we've been giving particular attention to during this lent that I want to circle back to today so these next few minutes of what i'm going to say will be a review for some but probably a a good thing to review one unintentional or at least unplanned theme that emerged during some of my sermons this lenten season was a facing up to the reality that we are all addicts. We are all addicts. That from both a physiological and a spiritual standpoint, to be human is quite literally to be addicted. Back on March 15th, we reviewed a list of addictive agents that I've reprinted in your bulletin this morning, a list which predictably begins with alcohol and drugs, But after that on the list come many practices that are included that may surprise us because many of these tend to be approved of or even celebrated, not just by society, but in some cases by the church. It's not that all of the behaviors listed here are inherently bad or that we should never do some of them. However, it is true that we may have an unhealthy dependence upon some of these practices that is actually inhibiting us from experiencing more of the kingdom life God intended for us to have, both personally and in our relationships. So just to briefly review that list. After alcohol and drugs, the list includes, number two, work, achievement, and success. Number three, money addictions, such as overspending, gambling, or hoarding money, miserliness. Number four, control addictions that surface in personal, sexual, family, and business relationships. Number five, food addictions. Number six, sexual addictions. Number seven, approval dependency, that is the need to please people. Number eight, rescuing patterns toward other persons. Number nine, Dependency on toxic relationships, that is, relationships that are damaging and hurtful. Number 10, physical illness, that is, hypochondria. Number 11, exercise and physical conditioning. Number 12, cosmetics, clothes, cosmetic surgery, trying to look good on the outside. Number 13, academic pursuits and excessive intellectualizing. Number 14, religiosity or religious legalism, that is, preoccupation with the form and the rules and regulations of religion rather than benefiting from the real spiritual message. Number 15, general perfectionism. Number 16, cleaning and avoiding contamination and other obsessive-compulsive symptoms. 17, organizing, structuring, that is, the need to always have everything in its place. Eighteen, materialism. Nineteen, phones, screens, video games. Each of these agents, again, are not necessarily inherently bad, but can be used to essentially edge God out of our lives, to replace God, and thus are harmful. But in that same sermon that I spoke about these, I also talked about how how the root of these addictions to these agents, I talked about what that root was of our addictions to these agents, and that both the spark that gets them going and the fuel that causes them to grow is the feeling of worthlessness, which may surprise you. The root of almost all addictions to any of these agents is the feeling of worthlessness, which often comes from emotionally traumatic experiences in our past that remain unhealed. To be clear, even if someone doesn't consciously believe themselves to be worthless at all, a subconscious feeling of of worthlessness, just the feeling, is commonly what leads us to develop habits that will quickly manufacture good feelings for us, instant gratification, in an attempt to keep those feelings of worthlessness at bay. Now, we're never going to be rid of all the addictions in our lives, so thank goodness for God's grace of forgiveness. But as we begin to realize that a particular addiction is producing long-term consequences that far outweigh the diminishing short-term relief they provide, we'll be getting to the point of wanting to move past these behaviors. Certainly the Lord wants to invite us to move past. And yet in a Wednesday night homily that I followed up the sermon on addictions with, I talked about how our instincts about how to go about moving past addictive behaviors, sin in our lives, our instincts for how to do that are almost always misguided. This is because for most all of us, When we find ourselves doing something that we don't want to be doing, our impulse is to respond to that by treating ourselves with self-judgment. To try to even motivate ourselves to behave by treating ourselves with self-contempt. Come on, get it together, we might say to ourselves. Something like that. Well, this is because the reason that this seems to be the way to handle it is because we've been taught by the world, often through the modeling of others, that growth and behavior change come in people's lives through shame. That's the false lesson that that behavior is based on. The reason why treating ourselves with contempt or judgment, like I've described, for our failures, the reason why that's misguided, and literally never I think I can say this, never in the long-term way produces the results we hope it will, is because it, in truth it only compounds that sense of worthlessness and shame that's at the root of our sinful behavior in the first place. Well, while most of what I've just said is review for those who heard me preach about this in mid-March, What is new, what I want to suggest newly to you this morning, is that Jesus' trial and crucifixion, when the world renders the incorrect judgment that Jesus is worthless, in that we are seeing done to him the reality of what we do to ourselves in sin. The cross reveals the true nature of sin that while it may feel good or even seem best to our limited understanding, when we choose to persist in sin or in addictive behavior, it is essentially self-abuse, whether we recognize it or not. But the absurdity of Jesus' passion, of humankind treating the one whose worth, whose worth is beyond compare, treating him as if he is worthless, Well, that is analogous to the absurdity of how we often respond to our own sin once we're ready to be rid of it. As I said, by treating ourselves with contempt as if we are worthless, when the Lord has determined just the opposite. But what comes after Jesus' passion, in what comes, we see the absurdity of his trial and crucifixion laid bare and debunked. Even in the final verse of our Matthew 27 passage, the centurion and those with him are beginning to grasp how mistaken everyone has been about this Jesus. When they saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly this was the Son of God. Truly he did have worth. And of course, three days later, Humanity's determination that Jesus was worthless would be disproven in spades as his resurrection would prove quite the opposite, vindicating him as the Son of God. And as St. Paul recounts in our passage from Philippians today, the significance of his resurrection, according to St. Paul, is, quote, that therefore God has highly exalted Jesus. And bestowed on him the name that is above every name, of exceeding worth, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And so the resurrection that we'll be celebrating a week from now certainly debunks the determination by the world of Jesus' dispensability and worthlessness. But through Christ, God has also debunked any lies we have come to believe, sub- believe consciously or feel subconsciously, about our own worth. By sending His Son to enter into the human condition and go to the cross for our sakes, God showed our inestimable worth to Him. Jesus deemed us as being so valuable to him that he was willing to die for relationship with us. But even in addition to that, Jesus also took on the shame. Jesus took on that shame that we are so prone to dish out on ourselves and on each other. He took the shame on himself, that shame on himself, in order to open a way for us for us to be free of it and to help others get free of shame. And so in the cross, as Jesus receives the shame that we often dish out to ourselves and others, Jesus is inviting us then to give up treating ourselves with shame. What does this mean? Well, this means that whenever we begin to experience feelings of worthlessness, first we probably need to kind of practice noticing when that's what's really going on in us. But when we detect that is what's going on, rather than seeking to come up, co- excuse me, to cover up those feelings with sins of instant gratification, Jesus instead invites us to acknowledge those feelings and turn to him in them and turn to the body of Christ, other trusted believers, so that we can be reminded of the truth that we're worth more than that sin we're tempted to inflict on ourselves. In moments like this, I've personally found it helpful to practice the self-talk of saying to myself, I get, get, John, that you may feel worthless or bad about yourself in this moment. And there may be all sorts of legitimate reasons that you feel that way. But Jesus has said and has shown that you are worth a whole lot to him, regardless of how you feel about yourself. but not just when we were temp- when we're tempted but even when we do screw up or as we resolve to try to move beyond some of the more destructive habits that we tend to use to make ourselves feel okay my encouragement is not to see is not to use self-condemnation to cease using self-judgment because again That only compounds that sense of worthlessness that's at the root of those sinful inclinations and behaviors in the first place. Instead, my encouragement is to begin practicing self-compassion by reminding ourselves, as I just described myself doing, reminding ourselves or practicing a discipline that reminds us that God has deemed us as gloriously lovable and inestimably valuable to him. As Paul wrote in Romans, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us anyway. And so I wonder, for any of you, for example, who heard me first suggest some of these ideas weeks ago, I wonder if you've tried it. If you've tried to be self-compassionate rather than self-condemning. And if you've discovered any blessing from? It. If so, shoot me a text or email me and let me know about your experience. I'll tell you, it may feel really strange for a while, right? I mean, we, when we've been beating up on, on ourselves for so long, it's kind of takes a little while to, you know, to sh- to shift that that behavior to even get used to the feeling, right? So many of us are so accustomed to responding to our own sin with shame, with self-shaming. Some, many of us have even learned to do that uh, in religious households or in the church that come to believe that this is what God would have us do. But I'm telling you that that is actually a worldly, ungodly mentality that is anathema to the passion, to the death and resurrection of Jesus and what it's meant to teach. And invite us into. So I'm inviting, I'm inviting you. This Palm Sunday. To begin or continue. Leaving shame behind. I'm telling you that it's okay. To leave it behind. That Jesus bore it. So we don't have to. And so as we journey through this holy week. Practicing gratitude for the passion of Jesus. For his willingness to suffer for our sake may this compel us to imitate him by treating ourselves as being of great worth, by agreeing with the value that the Lord has deemed each one of us to have. And then as we begin to try that, watch how our living and resting in this truth will then begin to help us imitate Christ in our treatment of others. Who, though they may be mired in sin or would even seek to harm us with their sin, nonetheless remain a person of great worth. The more we practice self compassion, the more we'll have compassion to give to others, the more we'll imitate the love of Christ. Because the way we enter more into living living more into the kingdom of God, is by giving up on the way the world seeks to change behavior through shame and by seeking instead to receive and rest in Jesus' love for us. And likewise, the way we can love others into the kingdom is not by shaming them, but by sharing the love that Christ has shown for us.